Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Jason Schulman, and this is New Books in Australian and New Zealand Studies. My guest today is Jane McCabe. She's a lecturer in the Department of History and Art History at the University of Otago. She's here to talk about her new book, Race, Tea, and Colonial Resettlement, Imperial Families Interrupted, published by Bloom. Hi there, I'm Jason Schulman, and this is New Books in Australian and New Zealand Studies. My guest today is Jane McCabe. She's a lecturer in the Department of History and Art History at the University of Otago. She's here to talk about her new book, Race, Tea, and Colonial Resettlement, Imperial Families Interrupted, published by Bloomsbury Academic in May 2017. Jane, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Well, it's great to have you on the show. So, so Jane, tell us, you know, we'll start kind of broadly and then maybe zoom in. Uh, Who are the Kalimpong kids? So the Kalimpong Kids is a name that I've given to a group of Anglo-Indian adolescents who immigrated to New Zealand uh, between 1908 and 1938. Uh, so there were 130 of them altogether, um, approximately even numbers of young men and young women. Uh, and they were all uh, sent to New Zealand via a Scottish Presbyterian mission scheme uh, that saw them, most of them were uh, taken from tea plantations uh, and sent to New Zealand via uh, a mission school in uh, a place called Kalimpong in northeast India. So there are these tea families in northeastern India, the, the adolescents, right, teenagers, early 20s. Mm-hmm. Are um, mixed race and and uh, this Dr. John Graham enters the picture. Who is he? Mm-hmm. So John Graham was uh, so he was a missionary in Kalimpong for ten years before he opened this institution. So his role in Kalimpong, one of his tasks was to go out to uh, tea planters on these quite isolated estates around Darjeeling and Assam. So Kalimpong is quite neatly placed in the centre of those two districts. And so one thing that he noticed when he was travelling around um, to the plantations was that a lot of these tea planters had apparently engaged in relationships with local women uh, and they had children who were often living with them in the bungalow. Uh, Now some of those tea planters were, um, you know, they wanted to hide the fact of these children's existences Uh, but others actually talked to Graham about uh, the problem that they felt uh, the children presented in terms of If they wanted to take responsibility for the children's future, they had quite limited opportunities to do that. So at this time, uh, those kind of interracial relationships were seriously frowned on. So they couldn't send the children back to Britain or take them back to Britain when they um, inevitably retired uh, from the tea industry. Uh, And they also often weren't accepted on um, the maternal side either. So over the 10 years... Um, between 1890 and 1900 that John Graham was doing his mission work in Kalimpong, uh, he started to formulate this plan uh, for an institution that would um, provide for the future of these young people. Mm-hmm. And eventually he comes up with the idea of sending these 
teens and early 20s young people to New Zealand. So what, what motivated him? So yes, this col- colonial vision was central um, to the school that he started in Kalimpong, even though, uh, as it turned out, most of the children who went through that institution would end up being placed in India. Um, But certainly, so later in life, John Graham uh, made statements like he believed that New Zealand was the best place in the world for the boys and girls of Kalimpong. Um, But at the outset, he was very much open to these children going to any of the settler colonies. So the idea was that He accepted that there was no place for the children in Britain. Uh, He accepted that there was no place for them in India, but he thought that there would be a place in settler colonies um, because he saw them as kind of living up to these egalitarian reputations that they were developing, uh, which was particularly the case in New Zealand, which by this stage already had quite a long history of Um, interracial relationships and a kind of acceptance of mixed race populations. Um, But the other reason was quite pragmatic, I think, and that was just that the settler colonies were really crying out for um, labourers. So for men, uh, there was a great need for uh, farm workers and for women uh, domestic workers. And so this was really how he built that institution was around um, these settler colonial labour shortages. How did the parents of these uh, Anglo-Indian children feel about this plan? Mm, so I guess we'd have to talk about the mothers and the fathers very separately here. So I think what distinguishes this scheme from other schemes that sought to improve mixed-race children um, in other parts of the British Empire was that the fathers actually had, um, it was them that decided to send the children to Kalimpong. So John Graham um, ran this as a private institution, so it wasn't officially supported by the church. Um, It had some state funding, but it wasn't uh, a state scheme either. He was reliant on the tea planters to send the children to Kalimpong and to pay fees. So it was almost more like a boarding school uh, than than a kind of state institution where children were removed. So the fathers had a lot of power in sending their children to Kalimpong. Um, We know less about what the mothers uh, wanted for their children because they were essentially erased from the written record. Um, But anecdotally, it seems that the mothers were quite resistant to the children being sent to Kalimpong. uh, And I think certainly uh, they would have had very little understanding of the eventual outcome of being sent to Kalimpong which was that they would be sent much further away um, to the settler colonies and and ultimately to New Zealand, which meant that uh, the chances of them ever seeing their children again were practically zero. Mm-hmm. It's a fascinating story, and, and you know probably very little known un- until you uncovered this research. But but there's actually another mm-hmm. dimension to it, and that is the story of Lorna Peters. Uh, so yes. so tell us tell us who she was. So Lorna Peters was my grandmother. Um, and I, I suppose for me, for the majority of my life, the way that I thought about my grandmother's history was that it was uh, it was quite interesting, it was intriguing, uh, but I, I felt that it was um, completely mysterious and unknowable. So we knew that she was born on a tea plantation um, because she had some tea memorabilia at her house here in Dunedin in New Zealand. Um, we knew that her mother had been Indian because she had quite dark skin. But other than that, we didn't know anything about why or how Lorna and her two siblings came to New Zealand. So it was really uh, a great mystery and one that I never thought 
I would be able to solve simply because we didn't have um, any written records that I knew of. Uh, and Lorna died in 1978 when I was five years old. Uh, so the opportunity to ask her anything um, disappeared from that time on. Um, so it wasn't until 2007 when I was planning a trip to India um, and I visited my dad who was by this time living in Lorna's, in Lorna's old house uh, and so I just took that opportunity to ask him one more time if there was anything amongst Lorna's things that would give me somewhere to go, like some clue, a place or a name that I could go to in India to perhaps um, look up her past. And it was at that point that he brought out a packet of photographs that had uh, a group photograph of um, a number of girls, perhaps 20 or 30 girls, uh, lined up in front of uh, a rough cast building and it had Kalimpong School written on the envelope and it had the names of all the girls written on the back. So Lorna and her younger sister were both in that photograph and so that was the, the very concrete kind of clue that led me to Kalimpong and to uncovering not just Lorna's story but this um, story of the biggest scheme of sending children to New Zealand. That is just an incredible story. And mm-hmm. when you got to the school, which is still standing, right? Uh, yes, it is, yeah. What, there was a bit of a luck in uh, finding some old archival material. Can you tell us a little bit about that? It was, but I guess it's kind of the standard um, Indian experience to some extent where you just have to uh, put yourself in the right place uh, and wait for uh, the opportunities to arise. So when I first arrived at the school, I just had this photograph with me uh, and the headmaster there who I located quite quickly was very interested in my story but he was quite new to the school so he wasn't sure how to help me Uh, and then uh, a couple of people arrived and said we could take you to the museum so the school um, it it has a very different function now it's basically just known as a very good private uh, English school in India Um, but they've kept the records from the very first pupil onwards So in this museum, they have this amazing admissions book, so the original admissions book in a glass case, which I was given the opportunity to look through to find my grandmother's name. Uh, They also had bound copies of all of the um, school magazines, which were published from, I think, the first year, so from 1901. Uh, And then from the museum, I was taken down to the school office where I discovered that they kept a file for every student who's ever been uh, to Dr. Graham's homes in Kalimpong. So that was probably the most amazing moment for me was to have this archivist um, pop out to a small room uh, in the back of this little office uh, and come back in about two minutes flat with my grandmother's file, which um, you know had been created over 100 years before and I guess no one had ever looked at since she left the school in 1920. Uh, I want to zoom out again a little bit. Um, how does sure. the story of the Kalimpong Kings, the Kalimpong kids, tell us? Well, what does it tell us about you know identities and kind of the creation and the forgetting of narratives, especially New Zealand? Yeah. Well, so I guess that's what really interests me, and something. So for so I I wrote a PhD thesis on this topic, and and one of the main ways that I wanted to find out about this experience uh, was to contact other descendants um, of the Kalimpong kids. Um, and so I guess the the most startling 
pattern that I discovered from speaking to all of these families was that the original Kalimpong kids didn't like to talk about this background. So it was very much um, about silence. So that went from everything from not talking about it to refusing to answer questions to outright concealment and lying about it. Um, So for me, this has become... Um, for the book, this was my major research question really, was to think about how those kinds of uh, personal silences uh, affect the way that we write history. So if a story is not even known uh, amongst a family, um, how is it ever going to make it into the public record? Um, and I mean, this is something I, I quite often do public talks about the Kalimpong kids and, and people will come and talk to me afterwards and say, I've never heard about this before. How have I never heard about it? And, and my response is always, I'd never heard about it. And my own grandmother was was one of them. So that um, yeah, that process by which stories make it into the public record is, is one that's of ongoing interest to me. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing that is kind of larger than any one story is the the change in immigration rules. How, how did that affect uh, Graham's mm. plan uh, in the 1920s and 1930s? Yeah, so this is something where the Kalimpong kids' story really challenges the way that historians have characterized the immigration um, the, or the history of immigration restriction in New Zealand. So when Graham opened the homes in 1900, this was right at the time where the settler colonies were passing another wave of um, restrictions on non-British communities. Now, in between 1900 and 1920, uh, he still managed to get groups into New Zealand, uh, it seems, with relative ease. So the way that he managed this uh, obvious anxiety in New Zealand about the racial composition of their populations was to send uh, relatively small groups and to disperse them quite widely so that they would just be integrated quietly into local communities. Now in 1920 there was an amendment to the Immigration Restriction Act uh, which New Zealand historians generally uh, regard as a landmark in uh, our immigration restriction policy in the way that it gave complete discretion to the customs minister um, to decide uh, who could come into New Zealand and who couldn't. So in terms of um, Chinese and Indian communities, 1920 is seen as kind of the cut-off point. So where um, the potential for a new migrant, so one who didn't have family in New Zealand already um, from India or China to come into New Zealand was was basically impossible. So the Kalimpong Kids scheme um, really challenges that because although there was great consternation uh, at the homes in Kalimpong about what this new legislation would mean, uh, actually more Kalimpong Kids came into New Zealand in the 1920s um, than had in the whole, in the 20 years before. Uh, And so the reason for that, I argue in the book, uh, is that the Presbyterian connections, the Scottish Presbyterian connections that John Graham was able to gather around the scheme in New Zealand kind of outweighed that racial anxiety. So it really uh, contributes to what we know about how how the policies beneath that legislation worked in New Zealand. Uh, last question before I let you go, Jane. Uh, at, sure. the, at the end of the book, um, and I was really, I was really happy that that you told us this because I was worried that we weren't going to find out. But you do find out your great grandmother's name. Uh, what, what was that like learning that information? 
Yeah, that that was great, and it's something that I haven't followed up to date, um, but but something that I probably should. Um, that actually happened through another branch of the family. So my great grandfather, the tea planter, was quite unusual in that he followed his daughter to New Zealand, but because of that, he basically dropped off his own family tree in England. And around the same time in 2007, when I went to Kalimpong, uh, a, a member of his extended family in England who was doing their family tree kind of discovered us in Dunedin uh, and made contact with us. And it was actually he who located um, the name of Lorna's mother, which was Japri Gurkali. So it's, it's wonderful to have her name. But again, I would say it's quite difficult to to really be able to follow that up. That's partly due to the fragmented nature of um, the history of Northeast India, really, because what that name tells us is that she was Nepali, but it's it's quite difficult to trace because of the history of migration to the tea plantations from Nepal over quite a long period of time. But certainly, um, other descendants of the Kalimpong kids would um, would give give anything really to have a name for the for the great grandmother. Jane, I want to thank you for being on the show today. That's Jane McCabe. Her new book is Race, Tea, and Colonial Resettlement. Imperial Families Interrupted. It's published by Bloomsbury Academic in May 2017. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.